My name's Nicole Aberdy, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Books, Books, Books Sydney Law School podcast series, in which I'll be interviewing a wide range of Sydney Law School academics about their latest books and work. We'll be covering many different fields, including criminal law, international humanitarian law, competition law, and constitutional law. I hope that you enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I have enjoyed having them. Thank you for listening. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode six of the Sydney University Law School Books, Books, Books podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Associate Professor Gina Cram about her latest book, Understanding Sharia Processes, Women's Experience of Family Disputes. Gina wrote this with Professor Farah Ahmed of Melbourne Law School, and it was published by Hart Publishing in 2021. Before we start, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Associate Professor Gina Cram. Gina has been a legal academic at Sydney Law School since 2000. She currently teaches family law, where she's the convener, and public law. Her research interests are family law and family violence. They also include multiculturalism, legal pluralism, Islamic law, and dispute resolution. And I think all of those topics are covered in the book that we're going to be talking about today. Her doctoral thesis completed in 2011 was the first empirical project to look at how Australian Muslims resolved their family law matters. Gina was the co-author with Salim Farah of Accommodating Muslims Under Common Law, a Comparative Analysis, published in 2017. Gina has also co-edited Muslim Women and Agency, an Australian Context, published in 2022, and has published Islamic Family Law in Australia, to recognise or not to recognise in 2014. She's contributed to a number of books and legal journals, and in 2015 was a co-recipient of an ARC grant for the response of Australian family law to Islamic community processes. Gina is a regular commentator on the Muslim community in Australia, appearing on the ABC and writing for The Guardian. She's also a registered family dispute resolution practitioner with Legal Aid. Finally, Gina was recently awarded James Martin Policy Institute grant to research the impact of COVID lockdown on the experiences of family violence in culturally diverse communities in Western Sydney. Gina, welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Nicole. It's lovely to be with you. Now, I'm going to start with the most basic question. I'd like you to tell me what your book is about. So essentially, um, my book or our book is looking at the experiences of Muslim women in the divorce process. So we really wanted to understand when Muslim women were going through family conflicts, um, how did they attempt to resolve that? What were some of the challenges that they experienced? Because our previous research had shown us that um, you know, law is our understanding of law when it comes to resolving family disputes for Muslim women um, needs to be quite broad. So the the existing family law system is obviously applicable, but sitting outside of that are these informal norms and rules and principles that allow our Muslims to adhere to their um, uh, Islamic principles. 
And you said uh, early on in the book that one of the reasons that you two wanted to write this book was to challenge some preconceptions about the Sharia process. Could you tell me a little bit about what some of those preconceptions were that you wanted to address? I guess, um, you know, it's probably, um, uh, you know, well accepted that when the word Sharia is mentioned, um, everyone has some sort of reaction to it. Um, majority of times it's it's not a positive one um, and that's something I've experienced over all the years that I've done this sort of research. Every time um, this topic enters into the public discourse or public debate, um, the, the reaction is generally negative. The media coverage is generally quite negative. Those with lived experiences, though, of understanding how it operates and what it actually means in practice, it yields a very different understanding. And so there's this um, you know, disjunction, if you like, you know, between what the public perception is and what the lived experience of people who adhere to these principles are. So we wanted to better understand it from the um, perspective of Muslim women in Australia um, because our understanding of law isn't just law is what's written, um, you know, in statute or law is what's written in books. Law in our understanding is the lived experience of people. What are those norms that they live by? How do they respond to those norms? How do they challenge those? How do they go through those processes? So we wanted to really unpack that. And probably one of the most significant, um, uh, I won't say myths, but perhaps perceptions that we were able to challenge in the research is that Sharia is this um, static, ancient, rigid um, thing, you know, that somehow Muslims are applying some code that started over a 1,000 years ago and it hasn't changed. And actually we demonstrated just in our research in quite a limited capacity how it's the exact opposite. It's very dynamic. It's interactive. It's not to say it doesn't have its challenges in its application in this context, but um, it, it's it's an ever-changing and evolving and organic process. Mm, and that's something we're going to come to talk about later on. I know that your research was over a five-year period and, and mm. you've got almost a chapter in the book where you talk about the changes that you've observed in the system over mm. that period. I'm just going to ask you a very basic question and please forgive me for those listeners who are not familiar with it. Could you just tell us what is Sharia law exactly? So linguistically, Sharia actually means a path to water. That's the Arabic um, term, the meaning of the Arabic term. The understanding behind it is that it is, um, it, it's a straight path or a guided path. Now, in my work with my colleague, um, uh, Associate Professor Farah, we defined Sharia as almost a Muslim's moral compass. So it, it's, you know, it's kind of just your, your guiding way. It, it's a Muslim will, you know, live according to different principles, but it always suggests your true north. And I like that because I think it allows it, or at least it, it demonstrates how flexible it can be in, because that's the idea of it is that the way you live your life can't be bound by a particular cultural context or a particular geographical context as a Muslim. You have to adapt these religious principles to a harmonious existence within the society that you're in. And I think that's what people don't understand. Sharia is not supposed to challenge the, the legal norms that Muslims find themselves in in a minority context. It's the exact opposite. Um, and so it's really a Muslim's kind of way of guiding their life. And most people don't realise that the, um, the legal aspects of Sharia are actually a small component. 
the majority of it is how we pray, how we interact with our neighbours, how we interact with our family members, you know, how when we wake up in the morning, you know, I don't know, you may call it your morning routine and your evening routine and the, the you know, the prayers that we do, all of that, it's, it's a complete way of life. The legal aspects are a small part of it and the legal aspects that are relevant to Muslims when they are in a minority context are even a smaller part than that. And what you're looking at specifically in this book is the facilitating and granting of religious divorces. So that's an even smaller part. An even smaller part, yeah. Just tell us a little bit, just by way of background, something Mm. that you talk about in the book is the Islamic marriage contract. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's a really important part of the marriage process for Muslims. Um, Everyone has to, um, you know, sign, agree to be a part of a marriage contract. Um, And it's essentially... Um, you know, the agreement between the two spouses that's witnessed um, and, um, you know, it, from an Islamic context, it abides by the Islamic principles of marriage and in an Australian context, it abides by, you know, the Marriage Act, essentially the, the you know, the Australian law that governs the processes of marriage. Now, in the practice of it, what's happening in the community is it is generally a written document and in different contexts, there are certain um, clauses, if you like, that are written within this. So one of the really interesting things we found um, uh, in the Victorian context when we did our empirical research is that the imams there who are married celebrants and are authorised by the Board of Imams in Victoria, which is kind of a leading group of imams there, actually encourage women to have to, to write within that contract that they have a direct right to divorce. Um, to simplify the divorce process, I'm sure we'll get to that later. Um, but generally, you can put anything you want in the marriage contract that's not contrary to Islamic principles. So historically, Nicole, it's been, um, you know, um, historically I'm talking over a 1,000 years ago, women put, um, you know, where they wanted to live, um, what rights they wanted, you know, to secure potentially, you know, their ability to, um, you know, um, segregate their finances, um, you know, um, uh, they could say, well, if my husband was absent for X number of months or years, which was an issue over a thousand years ago, they didn't have the communication that we do now, um, then they have a right to divorce. So it's really, it, it's, it's, it's really up to um, the, the two partners there to negotiate what's important to them. And do they get legal advice, Gina, in that drafting? Because one of the points you make, and we're mm. going to come to talk about what the different types of religious divorce are and what the um, implications are. And mm. I know one of the points you, you make is that there, there are certain things that perhaps should be included in a woman in a marriage mm. contract to give a woman a right to divorce more easily. Yeah. Do the, the parties to the marriage contract get legal advice before they enter into it? Very few do. And by extension on that point, um, what we also found is most people don't even know what they're signing. And one of the, um, you know, one of our recommendations is this greater education around the marriage contract because when we asked so many people, you know, they were just so caught up in the marriage process that they didn't even understand the significance of the marriage contract. They didn't even understand that they could add things. Now, some of the imams who are marriage celebrants do a good job at explaining that, you know, you can add things, you can discuss things, they have meetings with the individuals beforehand, but the majority don't and the majority of people will don't even consider um, what they could include. 
And so this is a really big thing for women. It's a, a, a very important avenue if they are interested in securing rights under, you know, kind of religious principles. It's actually a very underutilised way of doing so. And the marriage contract can stipulate the type of divorce that's available. All yeah. right. So I, I thought that was really interesting because it's yeah. not something really that you can imagine people wanting to think about when they're going into a marriage. And so let's yeah. tell us about the four major types of religious divorce. And then I'm going to take you forward in a way, jumping forward to something you deal with later mm-hmm. in your book about what are the implications, particularly financially, of the different kinds. So the most common form of divorce that people, the the form of divorce that people commonly know um, uh, in regards to uh, Islamic law would be the talaq, right? And that's a form of divorce that's pronounced by the husband upon the wife. Um, And without going into too much detail, that can have a number of processes. So it can go over, it can have three consecutive divorces to absolutely finalise this divorce between the, the couple. So if the husband pronounces divorce three times in separate settings, those two cannot reconcile unless the wife marries someone else. And so, so that's a unilateral act of the marriage. That's a unilateral. That's right. That's a unilateral act of divorce. And most people think that's Islamic divorce, right, that, you know, Muslim women have great difficulty in getting a divorce. What they don't realise are the other forms of divorce that exist. One um, being the, it's called the khula, um, and that process enables the woman to request that separation because, in essence, um, in Islam, the marriage is a contract, as we just discussed. So a contract that you've both or the couple has agreed to. So Islamic law provides an ability to separate or to get out of that contract. Now, Islamically, if the wife, and there's no, and we're talking about there's no grounds for divorce, or the wife just simply wants out of the marriage, the khula is open or available to her. Usually the process is that she foregoes some sort of financial compensation or some some financial benefit she may have received, but that's to be negotiated between the parties. Because you remind me about that one, the khula. Do you have that right? Does that have to specifically be in the marriage contract? No, no. That just exists in Islamic law. Um, and, and, And maybe we'll talk about changes later. Up until recently, that was the predominant form of divorce that was taking place, right? But, but that has implications I'm sure we'll come to. Um, then you have a form of divorce of the khriq, which is where if you have an Islamic court or an, uh, an Islamic authority, um, under the various schools of Islamic law, there may be grounds for divorce, and this is where we're talking about neglect or abuse, violence, you know, a whole range of reasons, um, some form of incapacity, then that authority will separate that marriage, will will actually break the marriage contract. And, and so the fourth one being the tafwid, which is the delegated right of divorce. So it operates like dalak, which is the unilateral divorce from the husband, but this one is saying that right of divorce has been handed or delegated to the wife. So she can, um, uh, you know, divorce the husband yeah, when it's so unilaterally, now it can be qualified. So it can be an outright one where she has exactly, you know, if she just says, I want a divorce, that the divorce will take place. Or it can be qualified. So in certain circumstances, she may specify certain conditions. Um, or it may be um, if she has access to um, an imam's body or a, like we have in Australia, you know, a, a, a tribunal or a, a grouping of imams 
then if she goes before them, then they can issue that divorce. So it, it's really up to the wife or, or how she drafts that um, clause within the marriage contract. And that that doesn't have to be, you know, I guess the easiest way is if it's in the marriage contract, but the husband can grant her that right at any time during the relationship. In writing? Not necessarily if there's witnesses. So um, that's accepted. Obviously, it's clearer if it's in writing. That's why it's clearer if it's in the marriage contract. But even beyond that, um, if they come to an agreement, then that's fine too. Gena, I'm going to take you back to ask you a little bit about your research methodology. I know that you wrote the book over a five-year period and that your field work was based in Sydney and in Melbourne. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the, the methodology. So we um, we interviewed um, three different, I suppose, categories of participants. One was the women themselves. One were the imams, so those who were granting those religious divorces. And the other group, which were really important, made up of professionals who supported, you know, countless women as they went through those processes. So lawyers and mediators, social workers, psychologists. And so through that approach, almost like a triangulation, we were able to take a, or get a bird's eye view of the processes. And I think what makes our research unique is that we were able to write, you know, essentially a chapter um, from each of those perspectives to give um, a more holistic understanding of that divorce process. So whilst, you know, as you've read the book, Nicole, like we don't shy away from talking about the challenges and the problems that we've identified from the women's experiences, but similarly, there were challenges that the imams also face. So we attempted to raise them as well. And so I guess we were in this position where probably, um, you know, everyone would have something critical to say about the research, but but equally find something that resonated with the way in which they experienced those processes. So we tried to, yes, you know, allow the, the data to speak for itself. I mean, one end will come, we will come to that, the different perspectives, the women's perspective, the imams' perspective. But one thing that I hadn't thought about before that was really interesting from the imam's perspective is that they were at risk of backlash from the husbands. Absolutely. And and that's why the imams, um, they described it uh, as the women's process, right, because essentially they felt they've developed these processes to facilitate the divorce for women because, you know, 99% of these applications are from women wanting a religious divorce, not men, because men can pronounce that divorce, although they're encouraged to have some authority to confirm that, but you know they can then go on and form other relationships. So they can they can exercise the talak, so they don't yeah. need any intervention from anybody to to um, execute that. Absolutely, unless they want some confirmation, you know, like they want some sort of you know some document or some confirmation from the imams. But um, the women themselves are the ones that need to do the applications and. One of the most memorable moments in doing the research, I have to say, that even, you know, I, so I've been researching this for over 20 years, right? So I, I started doing this in 2000, really, with my doctoral research. Um, and, you know, I, I thought I was well informed even when we came in to do this um, ARC project. And I anticipated the views of the imams because, I, you know, I'm, I'm an insider. I speak with the imams all the time about these issues. But one of the things that challenged me um, in doing the research was not to make those assumptions about the imams because there was a really memorable moment in Melbourne in the lounge room of an imam who, if I told you kind of his, you know, basic characteristics, um, you would think this person would have no idea about the experiences of women. 
He had only been in Australia for a few years from overseas, actually from Afghanistan. Um, you know, um, so I just assumed he would have no cultural understanding of the experiences of women. And in this man's um, living room, you know, he 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 actually um, was involved in the divorce processes in Melbourne. He broke down and cried and he actually just said the weight of the responsibility he felt when he understood the difficulties women were facing. Um, you know, it's something that really, um, you know, troubled him deeply. And I, we walked out like we just thought even for us, like we walked in thinking we know we know what he's going to say. You know, we know this is going to be, you know, a kind of not 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 understanding, not really knowing about women's issues. And we we were confronted by by that and thought, well, actually, even as insider researchers, we've got to check in with our own biases um, in doing that. Yes. Let's move now to talk about the actual process. So you talk, we're going to focus, um, I make I make it clear that in your book you look at jurisprudence and the processes in the UK and mm. in Canada as well for comparative purposes, but I'm going to focus yeah. in my questions just because we've got limited time on the Australian yeah. processes. So there are two main institutions, the Australian National Islamic Council, acronym is ANIC, and the Board of Imams Victoria, uh, BOIV. So... I know there's a slight difference between them, yeah. but could you just talk us through basic, basic what the basic process is? If you're yeah. a Muslim woman, you want a divorce, you can't get your a religious divorce, yeah. you can't get your husband to pronounce the talaq. What's the process that you go through? Um, I, I can summarise that. You know, taking into account the differences that exist between these, you know, these kind of larger groupings and even some of the smaller groupings that exist. Essentially, a woman will make some form of application. Sometimes, I mean, they do ask for money in the sense there's a small application fee, but from our research, they forego that if there's any issue with payment. But, you know, that there's an application process where the woman will kind of have to share her story in some, whether it's written or an oral form. Um, usually one imam will meet with her to understand her story. Then they will try and make contact with the husband um, they will try numerous times. If the husband is not cooperative, then they, you know, each have slightly different processes. But let's go with the ANIC process, which is based in New South Wales. They will try over a four-month period. And if there's no contact, you know, the husband just refuses to cooperate at all with the imams, they will make a decision. Um, and usually they refer it to the mufti to make a final decision in that case. With the Board of Imams, again, they follow that same process of attempting to make some contact. In most cases, contact is made, at least to the extent where the husband will just say, you know, I'm not participating in the process. But most of the time, the husband has some sort of participation in the process and then either they can resolve it um, uh, or they, again, you know, kind of come into a decision as to which divorce is applicable. And is there ultimately a hearing before the decision maker? Does the woman appear? And if so, you answered yeah. one of my questions. So in the case of Anik, it's the mufti who's the ultimate decision maker. In the case of, and this is relevant because yeah. we come to talk later about the issue about there not being women as yeah. decision makers. Yeah. So is the ultimate decision maker, say for the board of imams, is that a panel of imams? And how many? So in both cases, the decision maker generally is is a board, is, is a number of imams. It, only in the cases that remain unresolved does the mufti get involved. Right. So in both cases it is. So whether whether it's um, whether her husband is there in the process, sometimes 
they are sometimes they keep them entirely separate but yes she will she will tell she'll at least tell her story once to an imam possibly more than one and she will at least have one possibly more sittings with a group of imams it can vary from two to five right so it can vary just depends on how they're sitting the availability like in new south wales they usually have like one saturday a month where you know uh, they they kind of all come together and it, it is almost like a courtroom but it's you know not a court process but um they have appointments so they can hear the cases one after the other and make decisions and they take notes it's recorded and then they will issue that documentation to the parties they are supposed to give reasons yes um sometimes they're more extensive than others and i think that depends on the circumstances um if it's a straightforward or if it's more complicated if it's one in which they are um essentially issuing what we call that the thick divorce where there's been fault then they will give more reasons um the victorian context they rely on the tatari code so the code, the family law code in Qatar as the basis of them making those decisions. Because you can imagine, Nicole, like, um, you know, any legal system or any legal principles, there's interpretation and there's difference of opinion and different schools of thought, you know, different jurisprudential understandings. So they generally do have to give their reasons um, as to which, you know, on what basis have they made those decisions because if the husband hasn't participated in the process and the husband often will challenge the authority of the imams when they are granting those divorces then that uh, you know that kind of is in their defense and they they that's one of the reasons why they've come together as a group of imams so it's not one imam making a decision which in which case they faced a lot of backlash from men but it's a grouping of imams we collectively made this decision it's not one imam who's kind of making the decision but, but can I also add, um, uh, Nicole, just to give a more complete understanding of women going through this divorce process, for some women, they don't even engage in this process for some Muslim women. For some Muslim women, they've interpreted a civil divorce as a religious divorce, right? And there are some grounds um, for that, particularly if the husband has been the one that has applied for the divorce, for the civil divorce, um, then many imams will take that as, the, as his balak, actually. So just to be clarified, because I was going yeah. to ask you about this, when yeah. you say civil divorce, you mean a divorce under the Australian Family, Family Law Act? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so some for some women, um, and particularly in certain cultural communities, um, for example, the Turkish community, for many women, they just do a civil divorce and they don't want anything to do with the religious, this, the whole religious process. Um, for other women, it's really important for reasons we describe in the book, like closure and um, being able to move on and have another relationship, all those reasons, um, and because they feel that they they were married according to religious rights, so they want to ensure that they're divorced in, under those same kind of rights as well. So you make the point that they're, and we'll, we'll come to later the relationship between the two, but you make the point that they're, they're parallel systems. But what usually happens, you say, is that the imams won't grant a religious divorce unless a civil divorce has already been granted. Absolutely. And sometimes women get frustrated with that. So you've got to, yeah, you've got to have a 12-month separation period. And sometimes, you know, they've just really moved on in before that. And they've gone through this whole kind of religious divorce process. And so some women will, will complain, you know, why can I not get, because if they wanted to um, enter into another relationship, um, you know, it's a constraint on them because they're not religiously divorced. So they can't actually, you know, engage in another relationship if, 
you know, that that's according to their beliefs, without that religious divorce. The imams say um, only in exceptional circumstances will we issue that religious divorce before a civil divorce, for the civil divorce, because we need to ensure that people are really clear about their marriage status because bigamy is an offence under Australian law. Yes. So if you think you're divorced but you actually haven't got an Australian divorce, you can, you know, you you, you know, because we don't know people's uh, understandings of the law or their literacy levels, they may not understand the consequences and they may attempt to, you know, marry someone else while still being married to the first person. So the imams have decided it's it's more harmonious and coherent that they do it in, in that way. Um, I do know in instances where there's been um, quite severe violence against women to give her that closure in those circumstances, they have issued the religious divorce. Do the imams ever say no to an application for a religious divorce? Uh, not that I have now ever seen or experienced because if a woman is basically saying she wants out of this relationship, whatever the circumstances may be, um, then everything that I have heard and observed is that they want to facilitate that. So your chapter, the way you've divided up the book, I think is really interesting. There's a chapter where you look specifically at the women's experiences and then you look at the perspective of the imam. So I want to come to those two. You've answered my first question, I think, which was why do women seek a religious divorce? Why is that important to them? I think that you've dealt with that. I'd like you now to talk about um, what were some of the problems identified by the women um, in the whole process of obtaining a religious divorce? So, you know, essentially the, the main concerns were around the process, not the result, you know. Most people think it's going to be, oh, Muslim women can't get a divorce. Actually, it, that's not the problem. The, the challenges are how they experience those processes, um, you know, around transparency, confidentiality, um, even language barriers. Sometimes those imams that are on that panel don't speak the language of the woman who's making the application. I read that. You, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And they don't have interpreters. It's haphazard, you know, like there's no processes in place because you have to remember, um, Nicole, these are the, generally the imams who do this work. This is on top of their kind of pastoral work that they do. They're not being paid. They're not in positions of employment. They're not judges, right? And so they they've been struggling with policies and procedures this is something we've discussed extensively with the imams and th that's one of the observations we've made there have been some improvements but you know not enough to substantially um uh, you know in, you know uh, i suppose allay the concerns that we've observed in those processes so women will first of all women often don't know where to go because if they're not connected to community they wouldn't even know where to start like you know, you, you're almost, a, you know, a step ahead just in reading the book, Nicole, and knowing that there's Annick and then there's Board of Imams in Victoria. But for many women, they don't even know where they would go. Where are these bodies? You know, how do they have authority or what are the boundaries of their authorities? Particularly if you think of vulnerable women who may have only been in Australia for a few years, possibly even less, they may have been ostracised even from, you know, those communities community structures so they don't know where to go so that's the first issue and then when they approach them to start this process um you know is it being done in a way that is conducive to 
understanding women's experiences, particularly there's been, you know, trauma and violence. Mm. Um, you know, making women retell their stories again and again is a problem. You make the point, um, retelling any of the stories, but particularly intimate ones, yeah. just to men. Absolutely, absolutely. It was one of the most significant things that women said um, that, you know, it was really hard because sometimes it may be necessary for them to say, you know, this is why I'm, I want this particular type of divorce, right? And it, and it has implications financially for them um, at that, that basic level. Now, some of the imams indicated, um, you know, okay, we're, we're not, we, we're not going to ask them intrusive questions, but sometimes the women themselves want that space to be able to share that information. They think it's relevant. They feel aggrieved. I mean, and the other issue they is they, they want to be heard. They want to be heard. I mean, the most significant point that we made to the imams is that women felt an injustice in terms of just not having their spiritual needs being met. And I think that was difficult for the imams even to accept because that's prime that's their primary role, right? You know, this is this is like what they're they're supposed to be in the community for. Um, and when the women are feeling let down, then it's actually having an implication on their spirituality because they're linking their spirituality with this process that they've been through. Um, and so the imams may be doing, you know, tens, I don't know, maybe more than these a month, hundreds of well, I wouldn't say hundreds, I'm you know. But, but probably, you know, in excess of 40 to 50 a month, I would say. And so they've, you know, they've got to get through this quickly. But for each woman that sits before them, this is her life. You know, this is a really significant moment. And so when they're not being heard properly, then they just not hearing them is an injustice. Yeah. Then you've got your conflict of interest that can occur. But they start from the premise of promoting reconciliation and as you you make the point which is a fair one that that's the same in the Australian family law system the parties yeah. are encouraged but you, you you make that point that there's a conflict between their you know their wish to get the parties to reconcile with the conflicting um right of the woman if she wants it to get a divorce yeah yeah absolutely and and it, you know it's a very different objective right um, very, very different objective. And so some women, it's really funny because we interviewed um, at least one woman that I can absolutely recall who thought the divorce came too quick, right, that she actually wanted help. Like she wanted the imam to intervene and to help. But the imam, you know, quickly issued a divorce and we could understand why. There was some quite severe um, family violence. So in that case, I think the imam took the view this, this is not good. Right. But for, for the woman, she felt, well, that's not that's not actually what I wanted. I, I wanted some help. I wanted some assistance. And then you've got the opposite end where women, you know, they've they've gone through these process. It's it's at the end, right? There's too much has happened for any form of reconciliation. Um, yet they the process seems to be more drawn out because the imams want to make sure that there isn't a chance for reconciliation. And the other issue is that the skill set that's needed. For reconciliation is different than the skill set that's needed to resolve a dispute and issue a divorce. And I think that's what's um, in conflict at the moment. We've got the imams who are trying to do all of that with limited resources, um, not necessarily trained in all of those areas. And I think that's what the professionals clearly told us, right? Imams are doing things they're not adequately trained to do. And that's not a, a bad reflection on them, but that's just, that's not your job. That's not their job. 
And they, yeah, and that that brings me to the uh, another one of the points that you make about specifically domestic or family violence that they understand physical violence, yeah. but they don't have as sound and understanding of emotional, sexual, psychological um, abuse. Absolutely, and actually, I'm I'm just finishing an article on this exact point that the most obvious thing for us was that the there have been improvements in terms of their understanding of physical violence, but for the most part, um, the other forms of violence, which are, you know, you know, really can be quite horrific and, and very um, important in those contexts of divorce, um, the, the, uh, the understanding of the nuances and the ways in which that violence can be perpetuated through the divorce process itself isn't well understood. Um, and so they've started to introduce things like having, um, you know, women supporting those panels, women to, you know, um, take the stories from the applicants, um, a referral process to a counsellor along the way. So there's, there's sort of starting to, I suppose, you know, put some buffers around the around the process to ensure women are more supported. We're not we're not there yet in in an ideal way, obviously, um, and women um, themselves uh, are quite clever in saying, well, you can have all these women that are you know taking down our stories and and supporting us, and that that's helpful. But we want women in on the opposite side of the table who are making decisions. That will really help us. Women who can understand, you know the you know the our experiences. Because, you know, ultimately uh, as when we delivered sort of train, not training, but awareness around our findings, you know, to the imams, um, we saw them grapple with this. Like actually they, they would say, but we're trying to be fair. Gaina, I'm interested to hear, did you do, once you'd completed your research, did you do a presentation to a group of imams? We actually throughout from beginning to end, we tried to stay in constant engagement with the imams because the reality is, if we didn't do that and our research would great would be published but would have no relevance they would just ignore it and then what what have we done ultimately so we we um consulted before we started the interviews we did interviews we repeated interviews with imams if there'd been a long time between our first interview um we when we had our preliminary findings we did presentations both in sydney and in melbourne they were challenging like let me tell you <laughs> They, they challenged us on, on many things. They challenged us on our methodology. They challenged us on, you know, because they're saying, oh, you've only talked to the negative, you know, the, those people have had negative experiences. Um, we Then we did more interviews. So we said, oh, grab grab the people, you you know, you want us to talk to. We'll include them in. Um, and so it didn't it didn't change our findings, but um, to, to kind of bring it in a sim simple way to their understanding. And I described it like this. I said, Imagine you had a really important issue in your life. It could only be resolved, right, in your mind at least, if you went to speak to this group of people. But they're all women, right? So you had to tell your experiences to a woman. You constantly had to speak to different women, right? And then the people making the decision, they're all women. How would you feel? It looks some, you know, some of them are a little bit further down the track in their understanding. Some of them acknowledge, but say our resources are limited. We're trying our best. And, and look, you know, I can't fault their intentions, but what I've said to them is that if you are in this position and you are performing this role, then you have an obligation to get this right, right, because the impact on women is very significant. 
And, you know, you can't, we can't tiptoe around those really serious issues because women are at their most vulnerable. And we know most of those cases involve family violence of some form. Um, and so, you know, you, it's, the community needs to improve those processes. We can't take the approach that was taken, like in the Canadian context of, well, just, you know, ban them. Well, banning them is just going to drive them underground. It's it's not going to stop them. Ban, ban religious divorces. Yeah, that's right. So so in, in the question of whether they have any kind of authority or um, they should operate, but you, we can, you know, criticise them and we can say, um, to women, don't do it, don't do it all that we like. But we know that women want that. It's women who want to go through that process. Um, so rather than just say, okay, no process, what our approach is, okay, how can we make those processes better? And I thought it was interesting that, that you've just talked about that. I was going to come to so your next chapter is the imams and how what they told you. And um one of my questions was how did they respond to criticism? I think you've dealt with that, but I'm interested, you've touched on it, but just tell us a little bit more. What did they, from their perspective, identify as the most challenging aspects of their role? So I think, as you mentioned before, the backlash that they can receive from men, you know, um, uh, in one location they actually had to have a security guard outside the, the venue. Um, they've since changed that, um, you know, because they've improved the, the the kind of layout of the venue and it's a little bit different but you know they will regularly be challenged by men because men will see them more often in the mosque in the community they'll say you know what authority do you have to divorce me from my wife and the reality is that they don't have they're not you know they're they're it's an informal process they, they don't have any their decisions are not enforceable right so the authority comes from though you know from the community itself in giving them that authority, but there's no enforceability. They can come up with a decision, right? But if there needs to be any sort of um, uh, enforcement of that, like let's say, for example, they may say, okay, you're divorced and you are entitled. We didn't discuss what we call the mahar or the dowry, but that may, you know, factor into the divorce decision. And they may say to the woman, you are entitled to $100,000. That was her dowry that she hasn't been paid. Yeah, but that's not enforceable. Nicole, you know, I, I want you to talk about that, Gaina. So that's an, that's one of the things we touched on earlier. That mm. there are con, there are actual real life consequences of which type of religious divorce you get, and yeah. one of the significant consequences yes. is that issue of whether or not you get to keep that. I'm going to pronounce the word incorrectly. That you pronounce the, the mahar, the mahar, the dowry. So just explain yeah. to people what that is yeah. and how um, what the um, implications are of the different kinds of divorce on whether or not the woman gets to keep it. So so the mahar or the dowry is an amount or a gift actually that's given from the husband to the wife at the time of, uh, of marriage. It's a key part of the marriage contract. So there has to be something of value that ex that is exchanged between the husband and the wife, not to her family but to her. If she chooses then to share it, that's up to her. Now, it can be um, given up front or it can be deferred. It remains a debt on the husband. So if the husband was to die, for example, this Islamically is a debt of first order. So first they take out any outstanding dowry, then they'll divvy up the estate. And now if you come to divorce and that dowry hasn't been paid, then that's a debt owing to the wife. If it's um, uh, a talaq, so that unilateral divorce, the, the full amount is owed to the wife. 
if it's the frick, which is where the a court or an authority has issued a divorce, the dowry is still owed to the wife. If it's a delegated divorce, depending on what their agreement, but usually it's owed to the wife. If it's khala, which is where the wife initiates the divorce, then usually that or part of the dowry is is foregone by by the wife. That now this is really significant. Very significant. And up until I'd say the last maybe, I don't know, five to ten years, majority of the divorces were khala because the imams were operating on their own. They didn't feel they had authority to do any more than facilitate this separation through a wife-initiated divorce, um, even if there were grounds for a divorce because they, they were not in that position of any sort of authority. So Islamically, it meant a woman, you know, did either could not recoup that money or that whatever it is of value or sometimes had to pay the husband something, right? Um, and, you know, that can have significant consequences for women upon separation if that was the condition of the divorce. What we've moved to now is if there's a ground for divorce, um, as we said before, neglect, abuse, you know, violence, et cetera, the, these panels of imams have said, okay, well, we believe we have authority to facilitate a tafrik divorce, which means that a woman will not have to pay any amount of money and will not religiously have to forego that dowry. But practically speaking, it doesn't mean that the, the husbands are going to pay that if it's owed. And that's your point, that it's it's not enforceable. And you write um, also about the interrelationship yeah. between the religious divorce and a civil divorce through the family law system. And yeah. you make the point that really, contrary again to a lot of preconceptions that Sharia law is trying to edge out Australian law, in fact, that the imams tend to defer to the Australian legal system in in terms of property and child custody. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes some of them will give opinions and that can be problematic because you can imagine when a religious figure that you respect gives an opinion, <laughs> uh, it can influence your actions. But generally speaking, um, particularly around um, parenting issues, so the children's issues, um, women will 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 go, you know, fight tooth and nail <laughs> through any process to keep their children, right? So they 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 may listen to an imam on property, but our experience is they don't listen to them on children. And in any event, what the imams clearly said with regards to children, the best interest principle is common both in Islamic principle and under Australian law. They're cognizant of that. Maybe some of the factors may be different but they actually think it rests on the same principle. And they recognise that they don't, not only do they not have authority, but they, they're they not able to gather evidence as to what is in the child's best interest. So so that those, as you said, the, the property, so the settlement issues, generally they will advise the parties to go um, and seek legal advice, even if they were able to help the couple mediate. And, you know, for example, okay, so she still owed her, her dowry. Maybe there's a house and maybe they can help them to, say, split the assets, you know, 50-50, they will say go and seek legal advice to have this enforced. Can I go back to something you were talking about earlier that I just didn't quite understand and I'm sure you'll be able to explain it to me. Um, where you have an instance of a man who is resisting a religious divorce, yeah. I'm assuming that that's in a context where the civil divorce has already been granted under Australian family law. So why, what why would he resist if, if there's already a civil divorce between them? 
why would he resist a religious divorce? Either there's a civil divorce or he can't stop a civil divorce, right, because you don't need consent from the other party. Um, The reason why he would stop it is because he, you know, really usually it's to further the violence. It's just to control the woman because he would be cognizant that she would not be comfortable in forming another relationship um, if she was still married to him, whereas he doesn't have that same limitation. Right, so he would feel comfortable having another relationship whilst being religiously married to someone else because Islamically he is permitted to marry more than one wife, although that's not the practice of Muslims in Australia, obviously because, um, you know, bigamy is a crime. But we're not talking about registering a marriage. They would be divorced under Australian law. But he wouldn't, you know, if he wanted to just um, continue the oppression or the abuse on his partner, Right. He would just make it difficult for her. And that's what the imams are recognising. If the husband is just trying to make things difficult, then they're responding by saying we're going to facilitate it in this way. And, you know, in New South Wales they're saying we're not going to let her wait more than four months to attempt to resolve this. Sometimes if it's really tricky and he's having some interaction with them, but then, you know, it's like dragging out court proceedings, right? They'll turn up, but then they'll drag it out. So it can drag out for a bit more. And and I'm saying this um, because I'm quite aware of the process. Now, when women are going through this, Nicole, most women don't know what to expect. They don't know what's coming. I know what's coming because I've been studying it for 20 years. And so I often get um, asked for advice from women because they don't know how many times they're going to have to be in front of the imams. They don't know the different types of divorce. They really have no idea. No, that um, was my next question. Where yeah. do women get advice and how do they know that advice is, is available? That's the problem. That That's where still there is a huge gap. And it just depends on how connected they are within the community. It depends on how, um, I suppose, um, how aware and educated they are about those religious norms so that they are well equipped to participate in that process. And so one of our big recommendations is this greater education for Muslim women because if you're going to go through this process, you really need to know um, this context. Otherwise, you, you are lost because there's no... Um, you know, there's no website, there's no pamphlet that tells you this is the process. We've deduced it because we've researched it and we've done a community report, which I try and give to women, um, but more needs to be done around that by the processes themselves because we, you know, we're researchers and we're independent of all of them. The processes themselves need to respond to the need for women to to know about the process. So it's almost like a what to expect. One of the major recommendations I thought was really fascinating, I'd love you to talk about, is a Muslim family relationship centre, which, as you say, is like a one-stop shopping. That sounds to me like a utopia. Yeah, it's my utopia, Nicole. It's, it's it, it, you know, I've had the kind of this idea from when I first did the research and I don't know if in my lifetime I'll ever see it. But because I... Hope I so, Gaina, and I hope you love it. <laughs> I, 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 you know, because I... Um, when the family relationship centres were first developed, you know, and I saw them spring up around even our local areas um, and I just thought, you know, I visited them, I consulted with some of them, I realised, like, what a great idea, you know, they're so accessible to the local community. Imagine if women didn't have to think about, you know, where they just knew that they could just walk in there and, and get all the different types of advice they need because, that's the key. You know, they don't know where to turn. They may get to an imam, but how are they going to get to a lawyer? 
How are they going to get to a mediator? How are they going to get to a counsellor or even financial counselling? Maybe even housing support. Like how will they get to all of that if they don't know where to access services within the community? And one of the issues with the current family relationship centres, which I think are fantastic, but even those operating in in suburbs where there are large Muslim populations. Excuse me, I'm not an expert in family law. The yeah. family relationship centres that you're talking about now are ones that exist within the Australian family law. Correct. So they exist, you know, I know countless all across Australia, government funded, and, and it, it operates like a one-stop shop. Different models, but that's generally the gist. Yeah, so in my mind was if you had that, that was, you know, quite Muslim-specific and you had, you know, a variety of imams who were available. So because, you know, there's diversity in the community, but they, you know, they were all trained in family violence, for example. They were, you know, so you you wouldn't send a woman to an imam who had no idea about women's experiences of family violence. But there's some basic um, understanding um, within all of the services that operate within that centre, almost like a referral centre that, you know, these are kind of culturally responsive counsellors or psychologists or mediators um, you know, have access to people in different languages so that those services can be more accessible. Um, lawyers who have some background in those different cultural groups. I guess that that's the that's the dream. And and I think it would save so much money. And interpreters. Interpreters, yeah. It, it would just, in my mind, it makes sense, but I haven't found any funding <laughs> to, to fund the idea. Um, I think it needs to be independent. So I think... It can't come from any particular group within the Muslim community. I think it needs to be independent of all groups so that it is accessible to all and it's not, you know, kind of skewed towards a process. I think women need to have the choice as to which imams they want to engage with or at all. Um, And, you know, even though we did this book based on understanding these processes because that was our objective, But as I said from the beginning, we need to acknowledge that some women may never nor ever need to engage with those processes. I want to ask you, I'm tempted to end on that because I love the idea of the utopian dream, but in fairness, I I want to come back to something Mm. because I know it was a really important um, outcome of your research was to rebut this um, assumption that Sharia law is immutable Mm. and that it's not flexible. So I want you to tell us about you discovered just even in the course of your research over five years there Mm. were some improvements that you saw within the system so could you tell us about some of the improvements that you've seen well so the key one is probably one that I've mentioned around the type of divorce that's been issued because it makes a difference even for women who are never going to see that money right because it's not enforceable but for so many women this is a spiritual process this is about their spirituality if they feel they've got closure and, and, and you know, an imam has told them or a board of imams has, has told them that they are owed that money, well, then they say, well, it's up to him if he wants to pay me, but I, you know, because I believe in a notion of justice in the afterlife, I'll wait for it then, right? So, you know, it's still safeguarding women's rights even if um, they may not see the money, you know, in their lifetime. But But in some circumstances the process does apply pressure on men to actually, um, you know, pay women uh, that dowry or that financial um, amount. So the 
the the type of divorce is significant. Secondly, having women involved in the process. I love that right yeah. from the beginning that some of them had introduced female intake officers so that the first person yeah. you're speaking to was a woman. I imagine that would make a huge difference. Absolutely. So the female intake officers, um, then you know, by the end of the research, there was a, a female um, member of the of the panel the thing is nicole what we found is that you know many would say if only women were, if only there were women who were qualified right and of course there's plenty of women in the community who are qualified um but you know it's i think it's just going to take time to have those women be involved in the process because the backlash that those imams face it's even harder when women play that role can you imagine like you know the the backlash more generally from community whenever there's um, you know, these sorts of, I suppose, advancements or or changes, the people who are at the forefront of that change um, inevitably will get some backlash. So it's a lot for women who are already, um, you know, I suppose, challenging stereotypes within the community because, you know, this woman is now playing the role of an, of an imam, you know, certainly making decisions on these divorce panels. But we compared it to, you know, there are overseas jurisdictions where the panels are all women, Cole, you know. Yeah, because they're all, all of those women have been, ordained as imams no no it's not an ordained uh, process it's just about knowledge how do you become an imam uh, that's a great question see it's one that's even um, at the heart of kind of in the muslim community because there's nothing prescribed there's no there's no spiritual process that makes you an imam so it's a level of um i suppose knowledge and then acceptance if we're talking in the australian community um you know, you could rock up and say, I've had this qualifications or I've had this education and he's my mosque or he's my centre, dress up as an imam and, you know, I recognise myself as an imam, okay? That's no religious reason why a woman can't be an imam. No, and they don't have to even be called imams because on this divorce um, panel process, they the, their, their, their roles as decision-makers they're not leading prayer. They're not leading a congregation. They are making very specific decisions about divorce. So it's finding someone who has that understanding, who's been, you know, who's kind of well qualified. Um, and there are plenty of women in the community who do have it, but it's going to take time for that to happen because not only do they have to have the knowledge, but people have to recognize them in that role. And that, and that, that change will will take some time. But, I, you know, I'm hopeful that not only will we have women coming on those panels, but as I said, that we will have panels of women, entirely of women, because these applications are made by all women. I'm hoping you'll be on one of those panels. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been such an interesting conversation. Thank you for giving me your time and congratulations on a wonderful book. Thanks, Nicole. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.